0: Hello and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, ScriptsAndScribes.com. But first, I'm pleased to have on a pair of highly respected literary managers who represent an A-list roster of television writers, producers, and showrunners. Returning to the podcast is a longtime literary manager who spent the early part of his career as a feature development exec before turning to representation as a lit manager at the Schumann Company, where he was promoted to partner. Uh, and he is A.B. Fisher. His partner was a lit agent who got his start at UTA before joining the Rothman Agency and becoming a name partner. He joined Resolution and ran the TV lit department there before joining the management ranks at Storied Media Group, where he helped develop and produce series such as APB on Fox, Insatiable at Netflix, and The Oath for Hulu. He is Dennis Kim. And in early 2018, they started a new venture together, Literate, a management and production company. Welcome to the show, gentlemen.
1: Thank you. Thank you. But but just correction, the oath was for Sony Crackle. Sony Crackle. Yeah. for all the fans okay
0: but (laughs) didn't I see a trailer on Hulu or maybe you can watch it on Hulu yeah you can
1: watch them on Hulu okay
0: so that's where maybe where I saw it there you go but it's for Sony Crackle um and now AB, you've been on the podcast before, and if you haven't listened to that episode already, you should definitely go check it out, scriptsandscribes.com. Um, so in this case, I'm going to start with Dennis really quickly. Sure. Um, and because I think you answered this question on the previous episode, so uh, Dennis, we'd like to start off with finding out where you're from originally and how you got started in the industry.
1: Uh, gotcha. So originally I'm from uh, outside Detroit in Gross Pointe, Michigan is where I grew up. Hmm. And Good movie. I yeah, was, <laughs> that's what everyone knows. <laughs> yeah. from. But um, so I went to the University of Michigan, then I went uh, back to Detroit and went to law school mm-hmm. at Detroit College of Law, which was a fantastic regional school. And then um, and I was going to just stay in Detroit and be a lawyer. And then I took this entertainment law class, which really I was super interested in. And and th- it then thought, you know what, I'm tired of freezing in the winters and love to check out, you know, the LA and Hollywood. And I ended up moving to Los Angeles without a job, without anything, just crashing on my cousin's floor in Torrance. And then I, um, ended up literally applying for, uh, well, I applied to all these, uh, entertainment law firms by looking at the Martindale Hubble, the big, uh, listing of all the, the the law firms and just sent cover letters and resumes and then i was researching and through the process discovered agencies and this was kind of the rise of of and power of mike ovitz at the time right so i had no idea what caa what agents were and as i was researching that and and talking to people about it i was like that's the thing i want to do i want to represent Actors and movie stars, and ended up so I shifted and then I took that Hollywood creative directory Mm -hmm. at the time and did the same thing, just started sending out to management companies and agency. I didn't even know what CAA or William Morris was at the time, but I said, if you have 10 people or more listed, then I'll go in there. (laughs) Thought it was a legitimate business, right? Right, and uh, I had a couple interviews. And the one that i that actually hired me <laughs> was this uh woman named Susan Smith, who basically was a, a a real powerhouse in the in the talent side of of the business and she was a New York manager or agent and then uh had an uh l a office and I became her assistant that was my first exposure to it so went in was there for about nine months and quickly realized I'm probably not cut out for, you know, representing actors, but then she had a lit side and I would fill in over there and that's where I really was like, oh my God, I love, you know, reading these screenplays and television wasn't the hugest thing at the time, but that's kind of where I ended up really kind of falling into the the lit side of things.
0: Now, for you, what was the biggest difference, obviously you know, submissions or the process can be very different in terms of, but there's also similarities in terms of submitting actors versus scripts, you know, headshots versus scripts or reels or whatever it was at right. the time.
1: Um, but how, what What was it about the lit side that made you say, I, I think I'd rather do this? Uh, I, well, first I was enamored with anybody who can take a blank page and create mm-hmm. something a story, a movie, whatever it is and that's kind of where I could, I just related to that and I also admired that so these are the type of people that I, and these writer clients, I could talk to them, they were more my speed, of course they were super intelligent, interesting actors that were represented by Susan but the writer side were sort of people like me that I could relate to that had an experience like me that went to a uh, college and kind of had similar experiences and were more on the creative side, so I wasn 't creative, but I could identify and admire uh, their creativity and would be you know could have good conversations with these individuals and help them hopefully help them get to the next levels gotcha.
0: Um. Now you're both partners in Literate, and you've after long careers at other companies, um, which seems appropriate to me. Just coming from you know outside, uh, since you're both sort of highly respected in the industry, um, and both your client lists you know are obviously enviable. Uh, and but the thing I hear most about in terms of, of the two of you, the terms sort of tossed around are sort of class act, trustworthy. Um, you know, just sort of an all around good guy. Why, thank you. Which I think uh, is, is what is it that brought you guys together? Cause I know Dennis, you were a former agent and you've sort of always been representation other than your brief stint in development. Yep. Um, what was it that brought you the two of you specifically together?
2: Yeah, I think it was about, it's probably, I mean, over 16 years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, we shared a client, one client, uh, who ended up, you know, I, because I had started in features when I, you know, first got into management, I may have said this to you before, uh, I was mostly representing feature writers, had not dabbled in television much at all. I'd always been interested in TV and I had, I had a client who had sold a feature and then had a TV idea. And, uh, so Dennis and I had started talking about, you know, the television business, and I had started to just start to get into it. And through that one client, and that process, it was actually the first pilot that I had ever sold when I was, you know, in management, and it was with Dennis. Um, And that one client ended up turning into two clients, which turned into three clients. And we had this, you know, long term, you know, manager agent relationship that turned into a personal relationship outside of the business, we became really good friends, Uh, and over the years, we had always joked about getting into business together. Um, you know, we, we had enjoyed, you know, collaborating, you know, on, on the representation side, even though we were on different sides of the desk. Uh, you know, we always had got along great, always had very similar, you know, we similarly looked at the business, uh, in, in the same way. And, you know, our taste was very similar. Uh, and the way that we looked at material was very similar. So, you know, when this opportunity came up, uh, it, you know, it was only natural. When he joined Storied Media Group, he had actually called mm-hmm. me to come yeah, over. T- and t-
1: Todd and I called him to be sort of the third partner, but he was still um, doing his great things over at at Schumann Company. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and kind of what he was saying, a lot of the – when I was an agent, it was um, the time when management was – there were big companies, and then there were more um, smaller companies that were focusing on the feature side. And we were a very – when I was at Rothman Agency, Brecker, it was quasi-managerial. We were just a small agency. We didn't represent actors and, and not a lot of directors, but our writers, we didn't have a big volume business. So, right.
0: You were verve, pre-verve. Yeah, right?
1: and even smaller. So uh-huh. we were very, like I said, quasi-managerial. So – that tended not to we didn't really need to maybe have that um manager on board um until i met ab and he was someone who i was like wow this is a person who actually is really good at his job and adds value to this situation and that's kind of the um why we just got on and like you said we looked at things the same way had similar tastes and worked well together and um that that was sort of the the impetus. Mm-hmm. Um, now you're both TV reps. You know, obviously, uh, AB, you've
0: worked as a TV manager, TV lit manager for a long time, and uh, Dennis, it's more recently you were a TV lit agent. Um, so, you, but you've done that for the majority of your career. you have been sort of TV centric. Um, how have you seen the TV landscape change in the past fifteen to twenty years? With you know all the growth of. of Cable channels, original programming going from I don't know how what it was 20 years ago when there were four networks, how many original scripted shows. But I thought at, that, that I'd read somewhere that at last count it was between four and five hundred a season with all the streaming services and all the money being pumped in. How do you see that? How have you seen the landscape change? And how's it affected your business and, and that of TV writers?
2: I mean, tremendously. I think it's probably closer to six hundred at this point <laughs> wow. now. It's I mean it's crazy. I mean, for as long as we've been doing this, uh you know, we've been fortunate, you know, call it luck, call it timing, you know, call it whatever you want, to be in the TV business as long as we have, because we've seen that drastic change, especially for me who had started in features to see the feature business dry up, you know, the independent studio business specialty market dry up, you know, everything's become about the spectacle. And, you know, I, I think when I first started in the business, like Disney was releasing, you know, practically a movie every other weekend. And now I think they're released. They release like six a year, mm-hmm. and, you know, between Star Wars and Marvel, right. it's probably two mm-hmm. original films a year, if that Um so, and then, you know, in the, the advent of cable television and scripted getting, you know, cable networks getting a scripted TV, I would say it really started, you know, between The Sopranos, uh, you know, I'd, I'd actually, I've never actually dissected it to see which show really was the beginning of it, but I could probably, at least in my career, maybe date it back to the beginning of The Sopranos, um, where every other network just started to mm-hmm start to see that there's a huge market for this. And, you know, as every network cable network started to get into scripted television, it felt like the feature business, there was a huge squeeze in, in the feature market. And as the TV business started to expand, the feature business started to contract. And then you started to see feature writers, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, start to migrate to where the opportunities were were Mm -hmm. and still are and as streaming you know came into the picture uh now it feels like over the last even just the last year you've got the warner streaming service and comcast and you know a, a bunch of these other places that didn't exist even a year ago now all of a sudden we have that many more buyers to sell to so it's uh you know for us having represented tv writers for so long it's been it's been a huge growth business over the last 10 years and, and, you know, we feel like we've been ahead of the curve in terms of being, you know, Dennis is definitely more recent on the management side, but just being in the TV representation space for as long as we have, we definitely have a bit of a competitive advantage because we've, we know everybody, you know, people that we grew up with are now running networks or running studios. And, um, you know, I remember certain executives who were assistants who are now, you know, residents of studios now so it's uh, you know we have these long-term relationships with a, with a lot of these executives that have definitely helped you know our business and our clients and you know I think just being in it for as long as we have has you know served us and served our clients extraordinarily well
1: yeah and and sort of seeing what you're saying those shifts and even I, re- I remember 15 20 years ago when it was Hey, if we can get a feature person to do develop for Disney or somebody or or Touchstone back in the day, right? And, and it was like kind of a coup, or you try to convince a moderately successful or successful feature writer to maybe come down and da- come down and dabble into the TV space. Um, I remember that was sort of a shift, and then now it's. You know it's interchangeable
2: yeah and you know what i've noticed too you know being on this side and having been in both features and tv when i initially started in management um the idea of a a tv writer getting a feature job was on un, almost unheard of it i felt like feature executives looked at tv writers as almost like a they're like second class writers you know so it was a right. second class medium mm-hmm. um and now the lines have blurred so drastically. I think a lot of feature executives have realized that a lot of TV writers, unlike feature writers are fast mm-hmm. and efficient and they're always you, generating you, ideas. Yeah. Like and, and you could get collaborative, them their, yeah, 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 until they get to a go. certain level, you could get to get them for a certain price. And right. Um, yeah. And the colla- the collaborativeness of what TV writers naturally do and being in a room and being used to taking notes and having to write and rewrite, uh, that feature writers just, you know, there's less pushback um, right? Absolutely, just because of right. how TV writers work. So that has definitely been a huge change, you know, when talking, still talking to feature executives now, you know, they want to hear like, who, what TV writers do you have that are available that, you know, would be great for a certain project? You know, 15 years ago, I would have never gotten that question.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, where do you see television... Going, uh, I was having a conversation with another TV writer, and we were talking about if this sort of boom, the money that that the streaming services are spending, can continue because uh, we don't know the numbers, we don't know the economics of it because like companies like Netflix don't necessarily have to, you know, publish those as opposed to like networks with the TV ratings for ad dollars, uh, so we don't necessarily know where that where that line will be drawn. To you know, because right now there's so many streaming services. Every network is developing their own, or every studio, um, and you have obviously Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. But at, at how? But how long do you think this can continue? Do you see it growing even further with more competitors? Do you see it shrinking at some point in the future? I mean, I it's tough to
2: say. I think something will definitely give at some point, I can't predict how far out in the future. It could be three years, could be five years. You know, Netflix was the first
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, every, almost every studio sold their shows or licensed their shows to Netflix. And, you know, that sort of launched the service. Now all of these corporations are setting up their own service and you're seeing them starting to pull their, uh, their product out of Netflix and out of these other places. Cause they're going to they're going to monetize their what they own. I mean, that's what Disney is doing with Disney+. Plus. Uh, you know, they started to pull off all their Marvel shows off of Netflix, as Netflix canceled them too, and, you know, Disney movies out of there, and you know, the Disney Plus service is going to populate all Star Wars and Marvel and Disney Channel. They have all... Now I'm buying Fox. Mm-hmm. They've sort of consolidated their empire that will populate the Disney Plus service, and you know, the price point at which they've now announced that they're going to charge people monthly as much less than every other service out there. So, and that's just one example and Warner Warner Media is doing it with their streaming service and
1: NBC mm-hmm. Universal with the Comcast okay. service. And, and that said is I think, you know, pe- I feel like people are going to get tired of just all the SVODs like having to pay subscriptions on right. multiple things. They may bundle or, you know, I think with technology the AVOD world is going to be a bigger deal and that's what comcast is doing and you know and just the um acquisitions of of ad based mhm so that seems to be another another vertical i guess yeah i mean and-
2: netflix is going to have to spend and continue to spend billions of dollars in original programming because if they don't have any other studio shows on the service it's going to be all of netflix originals at some point i mean right. they'll have movies um their original movie department you know has been expanding too you know so at some point you may never see another studios show or film on Netflix or Amazon because it's going to be on their own right. streaming service and what that does to the business I don't know does it still is there still going to be as many opportunities maybe um and but right they- right now as this as both of both Comcast and Warner Media are just starting out they're investing
1: heavily in new programming because they have to. right? Um, right. But there will be a saturation point. But we've actually had these discussions because we feel like, yes, there is going to be need out there. It's always content is king and and it's going to be more global and really specific, like local language. And those are things that we know and feel that that will be kind of the next thing. And that's kind of how we're you know we're a little company here but we're also thinking thinking big right and
0: um also with amazon prime in terms of their original programming uh with i think it was fairly recent that i saw that walmart is now offering more they're trying to get more into the free shipping game and lowering their prices in terms of uh, the the cap you need to meet to get the free shipping and I'm sure Target's going to follow suit so they don't go out of business. Yeah. Um, so what is it that drives you to continue paying for Amazon Prime? And I think, you know, it's going to be, you know, the television service probably. Um, you know, at least... And and who knows if Walmart gets into the game? Yeah, I mean... They know they tried some sort of Redbox-type service, but, mm -hmm. I mean, who buys... who rents? Obviously,
2: this is not a a retail podcast. No, 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 uh, no. sure. But, I mean, Amazon was obviously the first to market with that, and, you know, they have a competitive advantage. It'll be interesting to see... I mean, they're definitely investing a ton of money in original programming. Right. Um, You know, I'm not sure if any of these other services will uh, affect that in particular, but... You know, not to be an advertisement for Amazon, but you get a lot for the Prime <laughs> right. subscription. Right, right.
0: Um, but I, I think that's that's sort of the point. Is like everyone's competing for your eyes and your dollars. Yeah. And if Walmart comes out with some sort of a streaming service of their own you, for free, in other words, if you buy from Amazon or for, uh, buy from Walmart, you get the streaming service, or they charge undercut for fifty dollars, you get free shipping and a streaming yeah. service. You know, you could see how potentially that could, con- mm-hmm. you know. Because if you're getting free shipping at all the services from Target, Walmart, and Amazon, you know it, it, what keeps you yeah, at what Amazon? Are you pay for it? right? What yeah. are you paying that ninety nine dollars for? And it's yeah. obviously their Prime programming, or yeah. maybe you listen to Amazon Music or yeah. something like that. Uh, exactly. Um, now, talking about the WGA ATA conflict that's going on right now, it's still going on. The conflict of interest dispute that they've got going on. Um, uh, as a former agent or manager and as a longtime manager, Dennis Navy, how has this, uh, affected your business at all?
1: Um, business has been just going the, the same. Mm. Uh, the, our day to day. is just a lot busier because we don't have our agent partners that we split duties with and, right. and, 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 um, other conversations. So that isn't there. So, um, You know the way we work has been like I was telling you about when when I first met AB because he was very active. He was a very like um, added value partner to to an agent that I saw. So that's kind of the way I grew up here as an as an agent. So that's how we work. We we really run on a kind of parallel track with the agencies, keep them informed, and we have great relationships with our our individual agents and agencies and and miss them. But um, it's just not it hasn't affected us of, of a, hey, we we are lacking here. We can't reach here or we're not expertise here. So it's just um, a lot more volume and no kind of secondary help. Right. So that's been more of mean, a challenge. We
2: talk to executives all the time and I ask them that exact same question and. They're hearing now from a lot of managers who they never heard from before because, right. they, you know, they're like, I don't know who this is, but, you know, someone will send a submission for a show, some manager and one an executive at a network had told me that, you know, they sent a submission one day and then they called me every single day <laughs> for the next week to see if I'd read it yet. And who's like, that's not really how this <laughs> works. Um, but, you know, just to add on to what Dennis has, has said, you know, I would say that our, our Bandwidth has been stretched a bit thinner because because we don't have our agency partners to, you know, split stuff up with a a lot of times, you know, if we're going out with a pitch, you know, we'll get on the phone and strategize with the agents about, okay who who is this most right for? Whether it's a producer, studio network, whatever. And, you know, we'll figure out who we're going out to and then, you know, we'll discuss, all right, who has the best relationship at each of these places? Then we just split up the calls Mm -hmm. and, you know. We'll call half the list and they'll call half the list, whether it's a spec or a pitch or whatever, um, or getting a new client out. And now all of it's on us and, you know, all the submissions, all the follow up setting every pitch, following up all the, there's a lot of back channel strategic work that goes on and, you know, positioning things or, you know, trying to get an offer. All of that is all on us. Um, you know, plus our day-to-day development we do with our clients and developing their material, which obviously takes a lot of time. So, you know, we've noticed that there's just not enough hours in the day that we would have had before just merely by splitting stuff up with the agents Mm -hmm. that has now solely fallen on our shoulders. So, you know, it's a lot of, uh... You know I've had to to be honest, I've had to apologize to a couple of clients say just say, normally, I'd be on this within twenty four hours. Just bear with me because right. and everybody seems to understand. I mean, they sure. get the situation that we're in and right. and they appreciate you know everything that we're doing. But sometimes it's taken us just a little bit longer just for the sheer volume of stuff we've started to feel. Uh, you know if we i mean Dennis was an agent forever if he wanted to remain an agent he would have stayed being <laughs> right. an agent um i've never wanted to be an agent and now i i've gotten a little bit of a taste of uh what what the other side is is like and we definitely miss our agent friends um yep. and we hope that this gets resolved quickly for everybody's sake
0: um how do you see the conflict resolving if you could Throw your two cents in there and like, where do you predict that this will go? To be honest, I have no idea. Um,
2: Every single one of our clients ask us, how long do you think this is going to be? What do you think it's going to take? I think, you know, on the one hand, the guild is not, you know, releasing their strategy. And, you know, the ATA seems to be wanting to make a deal. I, I hope that I would assume the WGA wants to make a deal, too. But no one's announcing, you know, how they're going to go about doing this. So it's impossible as sort of an outside observer to right. predict or figure out what it's going to take. I think if, obviously, if the agencies say, okay, we're getting rid of packaging and we're getting rid of affiliate productions, the guild would sign up for that in two seconds because that's what they're asking for. Right. Whether Is that going to happen? I probably not, but I have no idea. So... Yeah, it's just sim- cool.
1: Similar thinking here is that I, I feel like a the only way to resolve it is, is to negotiate it and mm-hmm. to have negotiation. And it feels like the past couple of days um, that feeling has sort of bottomed out or they're kind of going to their respective corners and taking other strategies. But it feels like without that, it's going to be protracted. And, and that's been the... Um, that it feels like that's just a feeling now. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's
2: a great point. Cause like w- regardless of the business, whether you're in politics or you're in the entertainment business, or if you're selling a pilot or a feature, the writer's never going to get to work if you don't negotiate the deal. Um, and sort of the same case here. If, if there isn't a negotiation that's taking place, it's never going to end. So at some point, They're going to have to negotiate
0: something, um,
2: you know, otherwise it's never going to get resolved. Right.
0: Right. Um, Now, fairly recently, I think it was a few weeks ago, Verve wasn't part of the ATA and they actually signed on to a revised um, code of conduct. I think it was called. Um, And now from what I'd read, maybe it was yesterday uh, on deadline, the WGA is now uh, attempting to bypass the ATA and going directly to agencies, because of all the ATA signatory agencies, I don't know what their contracts are, what they deal they signed with the ATA, um, only a handful, like four, three or four, are you know are involved in packaging and have production entities and things like that. Um, what's your take on again, negotiating directly with agencies, especially those that don't have that well, vested interest yeah. well, that, in the same way
1: that's what the ATA was there for. That that sure. was sort of the umbrella organization that represented all the franchise agencies right. for purposes of this of doing negotiating the the bargaining agreement. So their collective bargaining for all the agencies. So if that they're going into going to, to bypass that, then mm-hmm. that what they're. No and the ATA ceases to exist, yeah. so,
0: you know... Which and, I'm sure is probably their intention, right? And, yeah. And, an, and
1: another thing is, because uh, I do talk to fr- friends at other, these agencies that aren't the quote-unquote big four, Right. these these agencies are also packagers. And they sure. do have packages, and they don't have as, maybe as many, but um, every agency from the biggest to the, the, the smallest on that list of nine, all package, all have packages, and all, every one of them in one way, shape or form have split packages between all these agencies. Mm. So it is a complicated matter, but um I think what these the, the not big four are feeling like, well, you know, they're looking at them that of a maybe a divide and conquer strategy, but mm-hmm. you know, it it just it just feels a little there is no like we were saying earlier, there's doesn't feel like there's a, a end game or or some sort of what's the strategy right and it and
2: it did feel from the beginning that you know all of these agencies even the smaller ones that are a part of these nine or so agencies that are involved they were were never going to break ranks with for a variety of reasons with the big the big four so if the guild comes and tries to negotiate individually i mean it'll be interesting to see we have no idea whether they will now um, but at least going into it, it felt pretty clear to us that they were going to stand by all of these agencies. were going to stick together regardless of the size and regardless of whether they had an affiliate production division, um, right. that only a few of them do have, uh, because of what Dennis said, they all package, right? They all split packages. And a lot of the smaller agencies rely on the bigger, bigger agencies for packageable elements. So uh, I think the thinking is that, well, if they break ranks, with the big three or big four, you know, the idea of ever being able to get one of their, you know, writers with one of, you know, a director at WME or CA or whatever, uh, would be a lot harder, which then affects their clients sure. because, and their ability to put shows together because, you know, they've broken ranks with everybody right. else. I would imagine that it would come back to to bite them. Right. So it's fairly complicated, um, right. So uh, again, who knows how, just to get back to your question, like who <laughs> knows how this is going to end or when yeah. it's going to end. It's just impossible to say. Right.
0: Um, a lot of our listeners are, you know, emerging aspiring writers. Um, and I've been asked a lot if, because there are no agents, you know, that are, well, I shouldn't say no agents. Most, a majority of WGA writers have left their agents Um and you guys, as managers, are substantially more busy, but lit agents theoretically should be less busy. But I've been asked by a lot of, of of writers if this is the best time or worst time to approach and seek representation. Do you know approach reps? You know, but, either on the ma- a- manager mm-hmm. side or you know from your agent friends. Only, dentist, sp- maybe, only
1: speaking to for this for our company, sure. I think is not the best time um so just our philosophy is we are not a a volume business that our business is very specific and what we're doing is old, pretty much old school management and it is identifying um and through the years and our bo- both shared relationships and our our tastes is going for these what p- people were passionate about and people we believe in and putting bets into and what we want to do is have a really boutique elite A-list clientele which we have Mm -hmm. and it is harder to kind of break in through that and I think especially now and what AB was telling you about our daily schedule to have the time to uh, maybe find that gem and that emerging writer is a little more difficult in terms of our bandwidth um, we always – we love discovering new writers and emerging writers. We do. and But um, to just answer the question, for us in particular, it's hard, and we will never just sign people just because, hey, there's someone who's kind of interesting and we're going to take a shot because right. it's just not how we were built. Yeah, I mean we do have a few
2: emerging writers on our list and are focused on breaking those people. Mm-hmm. And you know, for us it's about – you know people who have a singular voice but you know just to reiterate what Dennis said it is probably the worst time for us in particular because it's hard you know because of that the, our bandwidth to be able to you know it, we're keeping up with our client material it's hard like with emerging writers knowing how long it's sometimes to break somebody at this moment in time to be able to carve out the amount of time that it takes to develop something with somebody new and and get them out there with, you know, often you got to meet 50 people before, you know, you, you get a job or more. And sometimes that takes multiple years. So, you know, it is a terrible time <laughs> <laughs> um, right now. And it's not to say that, you know, it's not just material, it's background, it's, uh, you know, how you differentiate yourself in the marketplace. You know, those are the kinds of things that get our attention. That's not to say that somebody comes across, it would have to be somebody recommended to us. Yeah. You know, the we've had this conversation before, what happens when someone sends me a blind query, it immediately gets deleted before I even read a word of it. Because um, I just don't, I don't have the time. Right. I, um, so it's it's a it you know I feel for all of these writers who are trying to get in right now, and this is in my opinion like arguably the worst time to try to do it. I can't speak for any agents out there, you know if you know agents at all these agencies what they're doing about non guild writers yet because if they sign somebody and get them a gig, then the writer's then going to turn around and fire them <laughs> right. so. Or they're going to be forced to leave because, uh, you know, that agency hasn't signed the Code of Conduct. So
0: um,
2: it's sort of a double-edged sword.
0: Right. But in theory, and also, Dennis, maybe you can opine on this because I don't know if you've spoken to your agent uh, colleagues, former colleagues about this. But what if – and this is just a theoretical hypothetical situation where a writer – because you had mentioned maybe that it takes potentially multiple years Mm -hmm. to develop – Need to break a, a writer, a TV writer. Um, so if the agents have an abundance of time, I'm not saying they do because they still have director clients. I'm sure there's other things going on. But if it's potentially easier to get read, I don't know if that's the, the case, um, because it could take a couple of years and hopefully this thing won't last a couple of years that maybe they wouldn't have to fire this agent because they may, you know, but then again, agents are not in the business of necessarily developing... Young talent per right. se, right. Yep. but maybe Dennis. Uh, I don't know if you've have a take on that coming from the agency side.
1: Um, I the, the, the people I've been talking to, yeah. they are busy and it's like trying to find ways to still participate. And a lot of it, like you said, it's directors or if a writer is a producer or oh, they have right. a production company. Sure. Uh, a lot of these agencies are represent a lot of intellectual property, so mm-hmm. they're really involved with books and articles and graphic novels and you name it. Right. And podcasts. Right. And they turn the, those into to TV or film. Sure. So they've been very busy about kind of hate to say the word, but packaging these elements right, together right. And to to go out in the marketplace.
0: Right. Um now uh Dennis I had read that you had left SMG because you wanted to focus more on client representation than producing. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? On the producer role that many managers take on on some of their clients' projects. Um, obviously, sometimes it's 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 well deserved. It's in terms of the development process, in terms of you know bringing in attachments and you know, all that process, working on it for years. And other times, it seems like it's just they're latching onto a client's project. Uh, when do you guys think it's sort of appropriate, and when does it become Sort of an add-on, you know,
1: excessive, right? Um, well, kind of a, a good question because that kind of also um, dovetails into what we do. We're mm-hmm. we're we're managers, and the reason I had left because um, what I went into Story Media Group was to be a manager and produce and have a healthy balance. And I've never really done both. I know the representation game. I didn't know the the pr- producing game, mm-hmm. but um, I. It ended up being production, all about production, and I was just trying to keep my head above water and in the management side. And the way I was producing was the way that I would imagine a producer to be, and that wasn't just sort of showing up for the premiere party and the post party, and that's it. And I was wanting to be participating in every phase, every aspect, which was all-consuming, and as you know, a lot of the productions weren't in L.A., and any of the shows I was involved with were Atlanta, Chicago, Puerto Rico. I was there. So those were the, the, the challenges of trying to stay very involved and present as a producer and as a manager. It became almost untenable in the way that I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, the discussions I would have with A.B., he's similar. He's a guy who's going to go 100% and do his job as a producer and that led to this our discussions of this company being old school management client focused client first and we're not producing we're just not going to do that in the foreseeable future at literate
2: yeah and when you know when we sat down to talk about the kind of company that we wanted to build we talked about our collective experiences because i remember i was shooting a pilot in new york uh i was out there for six seven weeks and You know we approach the producing business exactly the same way where we're there every day for prep we're there every day from start to finish in production and post and what i found because i had a robust management business is that you know between every take i was returning phone calls i would get home after really long days on set and return you know a hundred emails and, or, you know, my Saturdays and Sundays, if we weren't shooting, that's how I caught up on everything. So it was literally like, we, we all live 24 seven business lives, like in the representation business, we're constantly available, although we have personal lives too, but you know, we're, we're in it, but actually physically producing a show and running our management business was literally 24 yeah, seven. Like you with had the time, your time difference. Yeah.
1: You're maybe in New York from the three hours and you're just, it just, you know, and, and I was in Puerto Rico is a four hour difference. Crazy.
2: Yeah. It was unsustainable. Like we, you know, you can't, you couldn't do physically do it. And I think that's also why, you know, you probably see a lot of managers who aren't doing that because it is impossible. And yeah, for a lot of managers, they do deserve credit on certain things and, and deserve to be involved. But for us, we made a conscious effort. Like, we both got into the management business because we loved representing writers and we realized that you know if we just kept our side of the street clean and and just did that job you know we were going to and we represent you know all these a-list you know writers we're going to be just fine like we both understand you know the economics of of producing and you know versus the 10% business if you you know get a show on the air or you get a movie made Um, you're going to make a hell of a lot more money, Um, but it's, it's fine. Like we're both ambitious guys and, you know, passionate about what we do, but you know, we don't need to conquer both worlds. I think eventually if we get into that business, we'll wall off the management side and bring in a real producer Mm -hmm. who's just going to do that. But for now, you know, the way that we're building this company is just about, it's like Dennis said, it's sort of an old school management company where it's all about representation. It's all about our clients and you know, for whatever conflicts that do exist, we just don't have to worry about it, right? Um,
0: well, that's especially refreshing considering everything you know the landscape of the yeah. you know literary representation game right now. Um, and a lot of other managers would probably call us idiots, for, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, for doing that. But
2: uh, so far, in the you know almost year and a half that we've been opened, it's it's worked incredibly well for us, and. Our clients, we feel like have you know benefited from it. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, but from the writer's perspective, and from other people in the industry that I've spoken to, it's it's not that way. It's refreshing, and it's it's they know there's no other agenda when you're coming to them with a client. The, that,
1: that word you you said refreshing yeah. has been the the word <laughs> that was we hear a lot of when we right. kind of well, early when we were doing our dog and pony show to all the agencies and studios. That was like, and and still to this day, we go to meetings and they're like, oh. They they assume we're we're we would produce right. when appropriate and but that's not we are consciously putting it out there we are not doing that right now yeah so that until, when they talk when
2: anybody in the business talks to us and we're ta- talking about a client or a project they know that's all we're talking about is mm-hmm. the client and the project and not right. you know us calling them at the eleventh hour and be like oh by the way right. You know? we're attached to this thing or calling the agent and be like, Hey, when you make that deal, you just make sure to tell BA. That <laughs> right. Right. You know, right. Um, and it's sort of like, you sh- you whisper it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No one really has to worry about that
0: when they're talking to us. Um, and you had mentioned um, just a, a minute ago about voice. And, and this is something that we hear all the time um, because everybody is looking for a writer with a great voice. Uh, it's obviously, subjective what that is but then there are certain undisputable things like you know it when you see it kind of thing um how can you is there a way to sort of quantify it or describe it so that a writer can figure out if they are in that point like do are they on the right track or do they do they have that voice do they have they found their voice i should say
2: yeah i mean it is incredibly difficult to define you know with some writers it's style of writing uh with other writers it's you know in their dialogue they have a very and that is also styled too you know for us you know I think for as long as we've been doing it and for anybody in this business who's read enough scripts, you sort of figure out what your taste is personally and what you tend to respond to. And it is subjective. That's probably the best word to describe it. Cause you know, everybody's taste is completely different and what I might think is a great voice. Other people may not. Um, so it, you know, to give advice to a writer in how to, you know, how you figure out, do I have a voice or don't I have a voice? There is no rule, um, you know, because, because we're in a business that is so subjective. Um, you know, I, I believe drama is less subjective than comedy. Um, so, you know, voice is easier to pick up in a drama than I think it is in a comedy because what some, one person might find hilarious, other people might think is the stupidest thing they've ever read. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I guess style is probably the best word I could maybe use, um, to define what a, a voice is but it's t- it tends to be you know especially in drama something that is a you know that has a depth of character um you know in uh you know what you're writing and you know sharp dialogue uh but there's a vision there yeah um,
1: and, and that to that is a writer should write what they love Uh, have a passion for and you know everyone likes to talk about bringing up their personal experience and background or or whatnot into the story That it doesn't mean every story you write is something that you lived through or you know happened to you but i think you really have to love what you are doing and doing it often especially if you're a newer writer or emerging just to keep keep writing you can't um just say, hey, I wrote this great thing. Let's use that to keep trying to find me opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's just c- continue to write and also, like, of with passion. And we tell our clients that, like, really experienced people, like, that are sought after. And we'll bring them these opportunities. And they're like, well, we, you know, it seems cool. The title's great. There's some, you know, the, I can see this happening. Um, there's a lot of momentum. It's already set up. We always say... Do You love it right at the end of the day. Are you loving this? And if they're like, Well, then we're like, Well, we'll just get the next one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's usually the bar. You know, we we re- repeated ad nauseum to our clients, you know, as we present opportunities, especially on the development side, where in success, you're going to be living with this show for years, many years, so you know. We say, oh, like Dennis said, over and over again. It's like, do you love this? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't love this, then it should be a pass. Mm-hmm. Um, but for newer writers, I mean, you know, again, in, in sort of the advice that we give to you know our clients when we're developing material, take chances. You know, it's don't worry about what can sell. And you know, I think again, we've had this conversation before. It's you know, we tend to look at material very differently than a lot of other you know companies do in the sense that you know yeah sometimes you write something to sell, mostly features on the TV side it's not really about that especially for you know writers that are up and coming we represent a lot of playwrights here too so they you know, a lot of them are writing their first pilots for the first time and when we're talking about material it's always about don't worry about what can sell. if you're chasing the market you're already dead. Uh, write the unproducible script. It's that thing, you know, that idea that you haven't really seen before is the thing that's probably going to get you the most attention because I feel like the, you know, the dirty little secret is that everybody writes the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, having been on the producing side and read for staffing as the both of us have, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you get a good look, you know, at the market out there and all the writers that are out there. And it is true that a lot of people are writing in the same genre, writing sort of, just a very, you know, the same thing, just with varying degrees. And it's those scripts that have ideas that are kind of out there that, you know, what we tell clients is like, when we go and, you know, pitch you to an executive and we talk about the script that you wrote, we want the response to be like, Oh, I've never heard that before. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it goes to the top of the pile because we know that they're getting the same crap over and over and over again. So we encourage and I would encourage, you know, emerging writers to not think about, oh, there's some other show that's a success. I'm going to write my version of that. It's Ignore that. You should, you know, write the thing that is kind of an out there idea that, you know, is going to differentiate itself in a stack of 100 scripts.
0: What is the best part of your job as a lit manager? The best part?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it probably hasn't changed getting somebody their first job is probably one a or one B outside of telling a client their show just got picked up or Mm. their movies getting made. Uh, but I, I would almost say getting someone, their first job is probably still the highlight because, you know, writers, you know, who have not made it in the business or, you know, either working at Starbucks or have some other career or you know doing something to sort of make ends meet that is not writing and you know we feel like if we get them in and get them their first job it's sort of fulfilling a dream for them and
1: changing changing their life totally changing their life and they're achieving their dream and they're a professional writer that's the greatest thing
0: yeah that's awesome um now on the flip side what's the worst part about your guys's job
1: uh, well, I think it, it's kind of what you were talking about with maybe emerging writers or a lot of people out there. You, you, you we're again not the volume kind of place, and just having to say no to people or or you, you have talent. We can't work with you right now. You know, kind of passing on people that you feel like, oh man, in, they'd be great at an agency with with in a volume business possibly mm-hmm. or those kind of things i think saying no to people yeah one of our uh
2: that client that i told you about uh who we sold our first pilot together with is still a client great uh mm-hmm. and she calls me the dream crusher <laughs> <laughs> um for a variety of reasons but you know i think you know whether it's telling a writer no, sorry, we can't represent you. Even if we see something in them, we try to be encouraging when we pass or telling client they didn't get a job or even just, you know, in a uh, constructive way, telling writer, you know, your idea doesn't work for a variety of reasons, knowing how much time Mm -hmm. was spent in sort of coming up with it. Like anytime we have to start with a negative, you know, and saying no to anybody, whether it's a client or a non-client, uh that's always the the toughest part mm. of part of the gig. Uh
0: what gets you up in the morning? My kids. <laughs> yeah, mine mine too. Um well, of your dog <laughs> Yeah, my dog gets me up. <laughs>
2: my alarm if when I go to the gym at 5:30 cuz I have to get up before my kids otherwise yep. it's over.
1: Um but I I think it's just um this company, yeah. like doing what we're doing now, is like my dream. Is do you love it? I love it. It's just yeah. it. Like AB was saying, it's twenty four seven, but it's such a great twenty four seven type of thing because all I can honestly say this: all our clients, we we love them. We love to hear from them. It's it's. I don't want this to be like, hey, you got free reign, call me anything. <laughs> no, but it and they're just good people, and I love working with good people and just kind of partnering up with. A friend of mine after all these years that we've always like he said we joked about doing it and we're actually doing it and we're we are doing it on our own. We don't have backers, we don't have you know, um investment people and and we're it's our our thing and we're doing it our way. We're have great colleagues and um it's just it's fun.
2: Yeah, there's no I, I completely agree. I mean this is definitely coming to work every day. I can honestly say every day when I get up, I'm excited to come to the office both because of who I work with and the people that we represent. Like we we have fun all day. I mean, our we know we represent extraordinarily talented people. Uh, who are doing amazing things and just the mere fact that like the fact that we work in this business and have been doing it for this long is there's not a day at least to speak for myself there's not a day that goes by that I don't realize like how fortunate I am even for all these emerging writers that we have to pass on or even writers that are working writers that we pass on you know we know us saying no is tough and we know that we're in a very fortunate position to be where we are uh and you know, none of that is lost on any of us. And, you know, this job is fun. I mean, it can be really tough and heartbreaking at yeah. times. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I'd say 90% of the time, it's, you know, a complete joy to come in every day and get to do what we do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it's doing it on our terms and, and also being able to, like I said, represent People that we're passionate about and we're super excited and, and truly. So, when we're out there talking to um, buyers and studios, producers, whoever it may be, it's genuine. It's not, you know, we're not, there's not, it's not a volume thing or, hey, there's a politics of submitting certain people because of, you know, you're representing your entire organization. We're, we, we represent the people we want to. So, that's been, Gratifying. Yeah.
0: No, that's great to hear. Um, now, you had mentioned it's a difficult time in terms of, of submissions. And in any case, even when it's not as bad of a time as it is now, uh, because of your uh, tailored uh, client list, you only really accept through uh, 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 referrals, which are, you know, a lot of reps. I mean, that's obviously the, the way you want to be introduced to a potential rep or client is, is through a referral. Um, but assuming someone has been referred to you, uh, how do you decide, uh, In because I'm sure you get, even through that process, you sh- I'm sure you get dozens, if not more, uh, a week uh, of, of submissions uh, to you, you know, for potential clients. Um, how do you s- decide which ones to read first? Like, what makes it stand out as opposed to... Is it just the log line? Is it the person's background? I mean, what? I mean, it?
2: it's usually like who submits it to us. Sure. Like where the referral comes from. You know, I mean, we take client referrals pretty seriously because mm-hmm. it's usually, you know, someone they know well. So they've already checked them out because they wouldn't be sending them to us if they didn't know them already. So, you know, uh, that probably is the biggest priority. um, And then obviously next you know agent submissions you know prior to this standoff uh you know but i think it's background experience um what they've already done um you know when we discuss it internally and the way that we operate here is that everybody reads and everybody weighs in and everyone has an equal opinion and if one of us here has any sort of reservation or hesitation. And we do a lot of due diligence too. you know, with anyone who we're considering before they, we even invite them in to sit down with us. Um, you know, we check them out thoroughly because, you know, we, we have a no asshole policy and, right. and, and, you know, life's too short and we want to make sure that, you know, uh, we know each other's personalities and, you know, uh, we want, we're good people. We want to represent good people. Um, but you know if anyone has any hesitation we say no and you know because we're trying to remain boutique especially now during this crazy time that we're in uh you know we've had an influx as you can imagine of you know potential new business uh but we're probably scrutinizing things even more because we want to make sure our clients who are already represented by us are well taken care of first and foremost and we also don't want to seem lecherous and you know just going out trying to take advantage of of this situation um
1: yeah if we weren't going to sign them organically before there was any of this uh strife then we're not we're not going after them yeah right and 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 also when we do sign like ab alluded to it we all read so it's sort of a collective in the best way because we all believe that greater things can happen when we all do it together and that's sort of Another refreshing thing that a lot of um, the clients that we've signed since the day, day one appreciate and can feel the benefit of, of having, you know, right here, like almost 40 plus years of experience.
0: Right, right. Um, and what makes, what are the essential qualities that make a good writer, in your guys' opinion? I mean, other well, than writing ability. Like yeah, I mean,
2: at, at, on the TV side, I think it's a it's a couple of things. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, you know, when we're sent somebody, you're judging somebody purely based on what's on the page. So, writing ability obviously is the first thing that you see and you judge anybody off of. Uh, so, I would say, sort of, the perfect television writer is somebody who is an incredible writer, who is amazing in a room. Um, who can get along well with others, who is a leader and can manage people uh, and is prolific, uh, isn't short on ideas, even if they're bad ideas, just, you know, as an idea generator. uh, Because ultimately, you know, we're in the creator driven business. We want to get shows on the air. Uh, You know, we're not all that interested in, you know, wanting to represent somebody who just wants to sort of sit on staff and is happy to collect a paycheck. We want people who are ambitious and prolific and, and, uh, you know, so if you have all, not every writer, most writers don't have all of those qualities, but if you do have all of those qualities, then you're somebody who's probably going to create multiple shows and be a great showrunner because, you know, you can, you can manage people and you know how to bring people together. Uh, and people want to, you're a great leader. People want to follow you and want to go into battle with you and, and, uh, um, you know, I, I would say that's the ideal, mm-hmm. but not everybody has the personality for that or, right. you and know,
1: and people find that, but like, you know, it is about the writing. It's what's on the page. And then just if you meet them and they're, um, you, you, it's hard to tell if they're going to be like, wow, you're a future showrunner, right? <laughs> but at least you're able, cause such a, like we were talking about way early, it's collaborative business and it's a lot of dealing with, um, producers, studios, networks, um, and buyers. You you just have to be able to uh, have the ability to speak, to do public speaking, I guess. Sure. Um, Be able to get your point across, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are
2: writers who, you know, don't realize, you know, they fall on their sword for every little thing. Mm -hmm. Like when they finally get a show on the air and – you know, I've told plenty of clients, like you have to choose your battles. Like, is this the hill to die on? Because there's going to be a battle you're fighting every day, multiple times a day. And you have to sort of realize it. And that's only going to come with experience to know the things that are worth fighting for. Uh, And sometimes there are a lot of things worth fighting for, but uh, it's uh, an understanding of when to push and when not, to push, and I think most of that does come with experience or learning from people. A lot of writers want to rise to the ranks so fast, right. um, you know, or when they get their first show and they have like two years of staff experience and expect to be able to run the ship. And when they try to put a showrunner with them or over them, they get offended. And you know, we've had to explain this to clients too. It's like this is a business, and you're being handed a hundred million dollar business, right? Uh, with two years of experience. If you were the CEO of a, you know, or you're wanting to be a CEO of a corporation that's got a hundred million dollar business and you have no experience, is the board going to hire you? Probably not. Right, right.
0: Actually, um, in terms of of, uh, the the collaboration and the notes process that you were talking about, uh, Albert Kim actually gave me uh, an interesting tip. He's like, even if the note is completely out of left field and you don't think it makes any sense at all um there's usually usually a a a germ of truth to it like i think his example was it was a a a cop show i think idea if i'm not remembering it incorrectly and the uh, uh the exec said can he have a dog it's really important that he has a dog and he's like a dog this is you know it's a cop show and he realized that, that while he didn't really want to add a dog the 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 thought of that relationship you know having a relationship for this cop was important and so he went back and, and addressed it that way um i think may, by giving him a partner or something like that um but i think that like realizing that that sometimes that there is a you know that don't take offense to every note that comes your way, which I think a lot of uh, writers, sometimes, especially emerging writers, newer writers, uh, might have a problem doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there's oftentimes a germ of truth in almost every note. They're not just giving you notes. Well, most executives aren't giving you notes mm-hmm. just to yeah. give you notes per yeah. se. Um, there's, uh, and, and other writers have told me that uh, you know if you get multiple notes about the same thing that's the thing that you really should be looking at as opposed to you know like you get 12 different notes and they're all different then that of course comes down to you and and your taste but anyway we're getting sidetracked Um,
2: all of that is true (laughs) everything you said is true i mean that's sort of the uh the idea of what's the note behind the note right um, absolutely what's the spirit of the note that they're giving you um and you're right. Most executives don't want some just like to hear them. Sure. Talk, absolutely. But uh, if they're coming at you with something because it's bumping them for whatever reason, there's usually the note may be terrible. Right. But there it's probably coming from a place that needs to be addressed. And sometimes right. it takes a minute to kind of figure out, all right, what are they really saying here? Right. That may not. That's probably the bad pitch. But, you know, what's the spirit of of the note
0: that they're giving that needs to be addressed right Um, now you both have a tremendous you know i guess as a company you guys have together uh, a tremendous a-list roster you know showrunners eps and 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 you know uh but most reps are always on lookout for new talent as as you guys have mentioned as well um again we've talked about referrals and how you get most of your your uh client new clients maybe in the past or if there are alternate ways what are some other ways you've discovered new writers you know with all the, the the plethora of fellowships and contests and networking and you know other things have you discovered clients in
1: any other way other than than like the referral process correct, and things we were yeah, talking about yeah
2: yeah i mean uh, to think. I mean, we we do represent writers who have come from other writer mediums, like I said, either in the theater mm-hmm. or journalists or novelists. Um, so, you know, I've read things in, again, in other mediums that I've I've I'm sure I've reached out to a number of writers over the years who. Obviously, not every writer can be a journalist or a novelist or whatever, but right. uh, you know, I've definitely found people that route that didn't come to me with a screenplay or a, or a TV pilot because if I'd, I've maybe admired something that they had written in some other medium. Um, so that's definitely been one. Obviously, on the comedy side, people scout the comedy clubs right. all the time. It's a little bit different. Yeah,
1: but. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever signed someone where you read a query letter <laughs> or something was sent to you and... It just was, wow, that was great. Let's meet. It, it really, I've never really experienced that.
0: What about like uh, the fellowships or like nickel or like, uh, you know, something like that.
2: Yeah. I mean the, I, I have a, I have a few clients that have come out of the Warner brothers workshop mm-hmm. and the CBS diversity program. Um, I've got a huge showrunner who came out of the CBS diversity program. Um, uh, so a, Yeah, I mean, we've definitely had clients that started out in a few of those industry-related
0: programs. Um, But that's not how you sort of discovered them. Like, they didn't come to you saying, hey, I just got out of the... You know, NBC, Writers on the Verge, are you looking for clients? Yeah, I mean, in, a,
2: in like with the Warner Brothers one, I, you know, would get, you know, I probably got tipped off to somebody in the program right. that, hey, there's someone who doesn't have a manager and mm. they're great, you know, would you be open to reading? But I guess that is kind of a referral. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, pretty much all those and even a couple that were like writer's assistants or um, on shows, they're referred by somebody. Right. Um, I've had done that even as an agent. I, I You'd call and say, hey... Who's even if you don't represent? or you're talking to a showrunner or somebody or an executive that covers the show. Who's who's great? Who's doing great? That isn't represented or looking for a change. That 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 happens. Mm.
2: It's a very agent thing to do. <laughs> yeah, <that's> agent <laughs> thing. To do.
1: But we don't we don't. There's no poaching. We don't make right. happy people unhappy. Yeah, and go after people that are represented. It's just not who we are.
0: Well, that's refreshing mm-hmm. again. Um, I guess, uh, and uh, lastly, I just wanted to um, ask, y- y- as a manager, you're obviously sort of the first in terms of talking about a new or aspiring emerging writer. Um, you're often the first to partner with them. Um, when do you find is the, the most appropriate time to start either sending the material out and or getting them an agent. Obviously, in this situation currently we're in, not. I'm sure it's Mm -hmm. different. Um, But when do you find it's the appropriate time to sort of get them an agent and or start getting them out to the industry, introducing them to all of your myriad of contacts?
2: I think when they have – like we've signed people – like emerging writers whose maybe whose script may not be an A yet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but again in that sort of amorphous what's a voice right. situation, recognizing that this person there is definitely something here that we can harness and and mold and shape and and help get to be an A piece of material. So usually we don't do that until we feel like they have at least one thing that is A level material that is going to get somebody's attention mm-hmm. that got our attention that we can hopefully elevate to a level that is going to get them a job and get them an agent um you know we we tell clients all the time whether they've written multiple pilots or scripts or whatever that you know if if the next thing you write isn't as good or better than the last thing you wrote we're not going to send it out and mm-hmm. that doesn't matter whether you're an ep or a staff writer um because it's not going to benefit you to send out a B piece of material. So right. you know same goes for you know a new writer when we're you know trying to introduce them to the town or introduce them to agents you know it's got to be of the level um because you're going to be judged like anything that goes out regardless of your level uh you're going to be judged against Writers who have 20 years of experience or, you know, writers who have no experience when an executive, they're not really reading the cover page, they're reading the script right. to see the level of craft that's in this piece of material. So, you know, if it's mediocre, it's not going to get you anywhere. So it has to meet a certain bar for us before we'll show it to anybody outside of our you know inner circle in the walls of our company.
0: Right, right. Mm hmm. Um, and uh, finally do you, What sort of advice um, Would you have for those emerging TV writers out there um?
1: I, I think what we're talking about Is continue writing mm-hmm. Always keep writing And um, be passionate about what you're writing And also just contacts You know, It's like it, I don't even know if there was a day When you just said hey I'm hiring an agent And or a manager And get me my job it doesn't work that way. It's all about getting out there, making the contacts through the guild and through the programs that you were talking about and peers and writers groups. And and that, that's what I find is a kind of shared trait with a, a lot of our clients is that that they seek out people in and it's real could be very specific, could be, um, you know, a, a specific writers group. It could be just. Meeting an executive that is hungry, young and hungry also and wanting to introduce you to their circle of friends. So it's a lot of that. Just constant networking. Yeah,
2: Mm -hmm. that's that's huge. I mean, even if it's like trying to figure out what people in the business went to your alma mater Mm -hmm. and taking advantage of that, because, you know, there are a lot of people who moved to L.A. who literally know nobody. I knew one person when I moved here like one yeah. who was in the business me and me that too. was it. Right. And, you know, but I figured out a way to, you know, get a job and get in and get your foot in the door. And I realize how competitive it is, but, you know, sometimes with writers, uh, the way to get referred to other people is to be around people who can refer you to people who, people like us and whether that's, you know, if you're working odd uh, jobs to make ends of meat, try to figure out a way to get that job in the business, be an assistant, you know, be around the business so that you can interact with people in the business that could do you a favor and right. introduce you to people who could, who will read your materials. So, you know, I guess be creative in, in your networking um, and just know that we're never going to read a blind mm-hmm. submission ever. Um
0: yeah mo- it, that most people don't.
2: Yeah, so the only way you're going to get our attention is if it's through somebody we know or tangentially know who's right. reaching out to us. So uh figuring out a way to be around people who it's you know even if it's 6 degrees know someone who knows somebody sure. um cuz if you if you know nobody it's going to be really difficult. I that said, I'm also a huge believer that if you write something amazing, it will find a way. I agree. You know, it won't sit on a shelf and collect dust and die. Uh, If it's truly great, it may take a little bit of time, but it will find a way to get into the right hands at some point.
0: Right. Well, it's been amazing. Um, Completely refreshing. (laughs) I'll say that one more time. Uh, But thanks for coming on the show. A.B., Dennis, you guys are tremendous. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Be sure to follow A.B. on Twitter. It's at A.B. Fisher, uh, one, two, three. That's correct. Uh, And you can follow Literate on Twitter. It's Literate Inc. There's no space there. It's Literate Inc. Um, And do you have a separate Twitter, Dennis? Nope. Literate
1: Inc. it is. Okay, that's one.
0: Okay. Literate Inc. Um, And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes and thank you all for listening thanks again guys
2: yeah thank you thank
1: you